and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. This month, as our nation marks Black History Month, we're going to examine the history of the Medal of Honor in relation to Black service members who have received the award, as well as Black service members who have not received the award and are either under consideration or will be under consideration. Uh, so we're going to spotlight as well ongoing efforts to ensure that other Black military heroes um, deserving of the medal receive the tribute that they're due despite years and decades of delay due to discrimination and racial bias. I'm uh, Dr. Edward Lengel. I'm Chief Historian at the National Medal of Honor Museum, and I'm Delighted to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Sammons, who is a professor of history at New York University, and Dr. Rashira Sancho, who's an ed educator and social justice advocate to the Mission Inspire podcast. Uh, let me give a few details of both of both of our guests have very distinguished um, biographies, a professional resumes, so I can only condense those uh, and ask them to elaborate on them if uh, you have additional comments. Uh, Jeffrey Sammons being a professor of history at New York University who has taught there since 1989. He received his bachelor's in history from Rutgers College, uh, master's from Tufts University, and PhD in American history from the University of North Carolina in 1982. Uh, Dr. Sammons is one of our nation's leading experts on African-American experience, specifically the military experience, uh, and especially in World War I. He's the co-author with Dr. John Morrow of the University of Georgia of an excellent book, uh, Harlem's Rattlers in the Great War, who also have been called the Harlem Hellfighters. And Dr. Sammons has been a historical advisor to the World War I Centennial Commission, as, as I have as well. And he has been at the forefront of efforts in recent years to um, conduct research into and recognize African-American uh, soldiers uh, from World War I. And in the case of, <clears throat> pardon me, Corporal Freddie Stowers, who we'll be discussing today, uh, Henry Johnson, Private Henry Johnson, uh, as well as others who we will hopefully be seeing in the future. Um, so he will be able to provide perspective on that. Dr. Sancho is uh, American-born educator, progenitor of multicultural and diversity inclusion concepts and curriculum, and a social justice advocate, uh, born to parents of African-American, Native American, and Dominican American heritage. And she is the niece of Corporal, the, uh, the great niece, great grandniece, I'm sorry, of uh, Corporal uh, Freddie Stowers. Uh, so she acts as a spokesman for the family, has been deeply involved in the process of not just honoring Freddie Stowers, but highlighting his character, uh, his personality, his life story, and making it uh, relevant to people today. Uh, she has a PhD in education from Walden University, which she received in 2019 and has been deeply involved 
in educational programs through her organization, Sancho Education. Again, she has done so much uh, that it's, uh, it's difficult to, to boil it down into, into a few comments. She's an executive board member of the Anderson County Human Relations Council, uh, with which she has joined forces with colleagues to encourage human rights care and solutions for youth and adults to diminish racial and ethnic division. Dr. Sancho, I know there's so much more that you've done here, but as I say, if I were to provide all of your accomplishments and all the work you've been doing for young people uh, across the country and your involvement in this, I would take up most of the podcast. So uh, I will leave some of this to emerge and we'll talk toward the end of this about the work you're doing today uh, and highlight. So, our focus today, uh, as I mentioned, is America's Black Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, and the history of the Medal of Honor goes from the Civil War right up to the present day. There have been a whole plethora of examples of Black and African American uh, service members who have performed great deeds of valor on the battlefield uh, and off the battlefield as well from, from the Civil War to the present day. Uh, but they have done so with additional challenges and additional obstacles that many others have not had to face, uh, specifically prejudice and discrimination, both on the battlefield, within the military, and then back home. There are many stories uh, many of which we can discuss today, of service members who served their country with tremendous dedication and bravery under fire, risking their lives, saving their comrades, defeating the enemy, and then returning home and being told to sit on the back of the bus, uh, even as many of them were dealing with post-traumatic stress, they were dealing with poverty, they were dealing with discrimination, their country all too often, and I would say in the vast majority of cases, did not recognize what they had done and not only ignored them, but persecuted them. And if you look at the, the overall numbers, I mean, the statistics tell the story uh, in, in devastating detail that of 3,507 individual Medal of Honor recipients, only 92 were black. But then you can look at additional statistics, 59 Hispanic, 33 Native American, only 20 Jewish, and 34 of Asian or Pacific Islander heritage, uh, which is really, a, I think, a kind of a damning indictment of the system. Why is this, why has this been the case? Um, any observations, Dr. Sancho, Dr. Sammons on just kind of this broad, you know, these broad comments and this broad overview of the, this disparity and what we've seen? I, I think the treatment of, of blacks in the larger society, this civilian realm um, is uh, reflected in the military. And that has to be a starting point for any discussion about uh, 
<clears throat> disparate uh, recognition uh, of minorities in the uh, Medal of Honor, and especially blacks. So look at the Revolutionary War. Uh, we don't know much about the the uh, uh, French Indian War, uh, but uh, blacks served in that. But we know in the Revolutionary War that they were not wanted um, initially uh, and were admitted conditionally uh, much later uh, and in limited ways. Mm -hmm. And of course, a similar thing happened in the uh, Civil War, uh, a war that ostensibly is fought over the institution of, of slavery uh, and of course the preservation of the Union. Uh, and it's not until 1863 that Blacks are actually uh, permitted to serve then. And then how do they serve? They serve in segregated units, uh, they weren't given equal pay uh, and uh, uh, were not allowed to have black officers. Um, and a similar thing would happen uh, in the Spanish-American War and of course in World War I. And blacks were the only group of uh, Americans um, who served in segregated units in World War I. In fact, the draft registration cards you will find had a clipped off left-hand lower corner to designate that these were the uh, uh, draft cards of black soldiers so that they were put in a separate pile. All other groups were integrated into the AEF, uh, other units uh, within the United States uh, military, the draftees uh, being the National Army, the uh, uh, National Guard, uh, and then of course the regular army or the standing uh, army uh, included Asians, Native Americans, uh, Latinos, uh, but not Blacks. They were in separate units um, and often led by uh, uh, white uh, officers. And it's interesting that you find a number of Black Medal of Honor recipients, in fact, with surprisingly large numbers, uh, considering from the Civil War and up through the 19th century. But then after World War I and after World War II, no Medals of Honor were awarded to, to African Americans. So you know, does that reflect a increased intense, uh, intensity of bigotry and discrimination rather than you know, things gradually getting better over time. Is, is that fair to say? I would say so. I would think so. Um, if we look back and we just maybe go back about 10 years or so, and then we jump back maybe two decades prior to that, we'll begin to notice and see that this struggle has been ongoing for a long time. There have been individuals who dealt with segregation all across this nation in 2015, 2014, 2011, 2009, 2007, we can go back and we can see that there were a number of protests held in cities across the United States and also overseas. Uh, most recently, uh, maybe about, I wanna say seven years ago. 
So um, I think that a lot of times we look at scholarly research and that scholarly research is speaking about how things have gotten better and how there's always some type of misconception that racism and discrimination or unconscious bias, implicit prejudice, whatever you want to call it, there are many different names, has never actually gone away, that the fact that we don't address it head on is what has caused it to fester over the years. So we're just progressing from what we've seen in these wars, moving forward to a point where we are now, where it had to come back up to the main surface to be dealt with again. You know, if we, we look at this with respect to the Medal of Honor, there have been efforts to address this problem uh, in recent years, in the past few decades. Uh, in 1993, there was a study by Shaw University and military historians. I know, Dr. Sammons, you're very well, well aware of this, which concluded that, quote, the racial climate and practice with it within the army in World War II best explained the lack of any Black Medal of Honor recipients from that war. President Clinton in 1997 awarded the Medal of Honor to seven Black service members who had served in World War II, six of, six of those being posthumous. And in 2014, President Obama in what's called the Valor 24 awarded the medal to 24 service members of various heritages who had been passed over for the medal because of their racial or ethnic backgrounds. So let me ask for both of you just the blunt question, has that been enough? Has that addressed the issue adequately? I would say not quite. I think for what we've seen so far, we noticed that attention has been placed on making sure that ethnic minorities are beginning to see that there's a level playing field publicly by being able to go back and recognize the contributions from those who've done outstanding works publicly so that we can see a better um, understanding of why we should not be divisive. And I, I've spent most of my career studying the United States in World War I, and, and I would say, be interested if you agree with this, Dr. Sammons, that there has never been a period in the military uh, history of the United States when racism has been more profound and more overbearing than it was in World War I. I mean, just putting it in context, in 1915, the Birth of a Nation, the, the uh, D.W. Griffith uh, film, epic film that uh, purported to tell the history of, of the South and glorified the Ku Klux Klan was shown in the White House, President Woodrow Wilson. Um, and the, the rise of the Klan during this period and after World War I, its power was never greater than it was then. So, you know, if we look at, we're going to zero in on, on the story of Corporal Freddie Stowers um, and Private Henry Johnson and what they experienced. It must have been, it must have been something far beyond what had been experienced in any time of our history, except pre-Civil War during the time of slavery. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and I, 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 I think even worse, I think Reconstruction in many ways is a worse period for, you know, black safety and black, you know, reputation uh, than, than slave. And in fact, Birth of a Nation has, you know, the first half, which is about blacks before the Civil War, and they're fine with those black folks. It's yeah. after the Civil War. And back to your point, uh, Dr. Lengel, 
that uh, the main villains in Birth of a Nation are black soldiers, mm -hmm. with the exception of Silas Lynch. Um, you know, there's Gus, the renegade, who's a captain. And he tells, you know, uh, Flora that uh, he's an officer and wants to marry her, which is a euphemism for, you know, rape. Uh, and um, so we see the the burning of the civilian, the attacks on the civilians and a sort of replay of what happened in Darien uh, in Georgia uh, and the pillaging and looting, et cetera. Uh, so one of the worst things that that uh, could happen to uh, the United States and the well-being of white folks is to have blacks with guns and as soldiers. Uh, and of course, this carries over in many of the officers. And of course, West Point always had a lot of Southerners, but many of the officers in World War One are from uh, the South, and they bring all those attitudes that, you know, they had from childhood as, uh, you know, the masters uh, to their, you know, relations with with black soldiers. Including General Bullard from Alabama. Exactly. Dr. Sancho, do you, so let's talk about your um, great uncle, Freddie Stowers. And, and his life and experiences. Can you, can you share something of how your, what stories your family may have had of him, of what his life was like, what kind of a world that he came from, why he joined up? Yes, just a small amount. Um, going back to listening to the accounts of my grandmother um, and my mom speaking about her father, who was his brother. Um, it was very interesting to see that they lived on a farmland. And he was instrumental, of course, in assisting the family at a very young age, of course, in helping to take care of the farm and the land of other people. They were taking care of the land of other people. Um, he wasn't working specifically, you wouldn't say, as a slave, however, enslaved to the current time and what he needed to do. So um, he was married. He was married to one woman who had one child and decided that they needed a little bit more. He signed up and I would say that it would have been out of a tremendous need because he knew that he would be sent to a place where he wouldn't be treated fairly, but it would be better to make a little more money than what he was making where he currently was. He knew that he wouldn't be able to speak the language that the people there were going to be speaking. He knew that he may not return home, but all of that would have been better for the birth of his child, for his child, if he were to go in and would get the things that were promised to him. You, you both mentioned a little bit about um, the amount of accolades that come along with the Medal of Honor during that time. A portion of that accolade also extended to monetary support which great uncle Freddie did not receive and his wife did not receive and daughter did not receive, um, even though he was provided his award in 1991, which was 73 years later after his death, of course. So I, I would say that that need to show that you want to be a part of something to show, you know, this is my country too. We may have been brought here as slaves, 
against our will, but we've had to work and toil for everything we've gotten. And in order for us to get more, if I can take this opportunity to support my family, I'm going to do that. I'm already working. You know, imagine great uncle Freddie thinking this to himself, I'm already working. But if I can get a little more, that means a substantial increase in the life that my child and my wife and I might have afterwards. Um, so we know that he went in not, not doing fantastically great um, monetarily, but to think that he would do better and that the birth of his child would result in something positive for the family is the most likely reason that he went, knowing that he would not return most likely. And he didn't, but he did something great while he was there. So he served with the 371st Regiment, 93rd Division, which uh, was assigned under French command. And yes, in his, it was the 71st. Right. Yeah, so let's <laughs> be sure to be, be uh, specific about that. And so he, on September 28th, 1918, performed his deed of valor and attack against German forces on a place called Hill 188, continuing mm -hmm. in the assault, uh, inspiring his comrades until he was mortally wounded. And uh, his, his grave, I've, I've visited his grave in uh, the Mizargan American Cemetery. It's a really beautiful, really beautiful spot. When you, when you think about that, Dr. Sancho, you and, and your family, you know, of course, it's impossible to know exactly what was going through his mind, what inspired him to, to do what he did. And we know he was, he was fighting for his, for his comrades. Uh, as I often say for these recipients, one, one of the, the primary factors we need to remember is the love that they had in their hearts. Do you, do you think sometimes that your, your, his two sisters who were there to receive his medal um, from President Clinton, do you think sometimes what he was like or what was in his heart or what, what carried him forward, what inspired him at that moment? Oh, most definitely. One thing Dr. Lango is certain, um, all of our great uncles, great aunts, they all carry a similar cord of behavior. Um, of course, some of them look a little bit different. Of course we do. But they all came from the same set of parents who gave them the same set of values that they demonstrated. Um, and what was interesting is even on that day in 1991, um, there were not just the two sisters there. So you're speaking of great Mary, uh, great Aunt Mary and great Aunt Georgiana. There were also other members of the family that were there. There were about eight, in fact. And they all shared the same delight. So when we think about Corporal Freddie Stowers as the way the rest of the nation sees him, we see him a little bit differently. We see him as a person who was raised with a set of values that all of us were raised with. And that is not necessarily a set of values that tells us to exclude ourselves from the greater group of mankind. It's a loving cord that exists through our family where we recognize 
when there is injustice, we recognize when there's discrimination, we recognize when there's prejudice, but we also don't exist in that specifically, which is why I believe that Corporal Freddie Sowers was able to do what he did. Note, I didn't say Great Uncle Freddie at that moment. And it's because in recognition of humankind, you understand that it doesn't matter. We all bleed the same color. When you form a bond with individuals, whether you speak their language or whether you do not, if you are working for a common good and a common purpose, you come together, you fulfill that, you become one, and you get your task accomplished. We've all been taught the same. And I can say that even looking at the 12 and the 13 brothers and sisters that my grandmother had, go back to the ones on great uncle Freddie's side, you have another seven and eight, then you see their children and their children and their children's children. So many of them have also joined the military. They are of the same mindset, the women and the men. So I believe that he was inspired by our um, ancestors, as we can say, his mother and his father, and all of that kind of goes through all of us. And it doesn't matter whether we've been discriminated against or not, and it's happened to all of us. <laughs> At some point, we've all experienced this on a pretty high level. I'm wondering if it just doesn't come through the energy. But we face that energy and turn it around, and we don't turn it around with negativity. We turn it around and say, you know, this guiding light that has come from our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents has been here for a long time. And we can go back and look at it and see it in Corporal Freddie Sowers and see that he didn't give up. He was low ranking. He didn't give up. You know, his, his, his leaders went down in front of him. He didn't give up. He kept going. Where does that strength come from? It's taught to you. And it's taught to you by those who raised you, those who were slaves. So yes, when you ask that question, I can definitely say he's an inspiration, but where he got his inspiration from came from his parents and his grandparents. And it, co it courses through all of us, just as it should for every person. Humankind, not black kind, not white kind, not brown kind, but humankind. And that's what he exhibited that day. That is beautifully spoken. And, and we'll come back in just a moment, Dr. Sancho to how you're conveying that, how, how you're showing that example and that inspiration to, to young people today, which I think is just so incredibly important. Uh, Dr. Sammons, how, what did it take to get Freddie Stowers this, this recognition? Can you share with us the, the process of how, how long it took and, and what it took to get him awarded the Medal of Honor, I'm sorry, not by President Clinton, as I said earlier, but as by President George H.W. Bush. Yes. Uh, also, something very interesting about uh, the Stowers case is that all of his officers were white. So his recommendation, his nomination came from whites, which is, and uh, I think uh, it was a uh, Perry Miles was the commander of that uh, unit, if I'm not mistaken. He was the colonel. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's a remarkable, I think, uh, a commentary uh, on, uh, you know, the heroism of uh, Corporal Stowers, as well as Burton Holmes, who was also black and, and nominated by these uh, white officers. And it was a long list of white officers who were nominated for the Medal of Honor from the 371st uh, as, as, as well. Uh, 
So it's my understanding that um, in, and this is in some of the documentation on uh, uh, Corporal Stowers' uh, case, that in 1990, um, the uh, Army uh, commissioned uh, a, a study of, of a, at the instigation of Congress of, of uh, I thought that it was of Henry Johnson and that in the process of trying to determine whether Henry Johnson was uh, worthy of consideration or reconsideration for the Medal of Honor that this team of archivists, uh, National Archives, uh, and military uh, staffers uh, discovered uh, or uncovered uh, four uh, African Americans who had been recommended for the Medal of Honor. Henry Johnson wasn't one of them, by the way, and I want to speak to perhaps why he wasn't uh, one. But as I mentioned before, uh, although they only mentioned by name Stowers and Holmes, that the other two would have been Van Horton and um, William Butler. And one of the things that distinguished Freddie Stowers from all of the others who had been downgraded from the Medal of Honor to the Distinguished Service Cross by General John J. Pershing was that Stowers file had not been processed fully. So in one sense, that technical error actually made the case for Stowers, whose heroism is undisputed, easier for this team to make because they didn't have to overrule uh, the decision of the of General Pershing or this metal review board. Uh, and so uh, that's one of the biggest hurdles that, that people who uh, argue for uh, reconsideration of DSC recipients have in that uh, there's a reluctance, uh, uh, a great hesitance to, to overrule decisions that have been, uh, been made. So uh, that is how, uh, and I think there was also, you know, a political climate. Uh, I believe that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush wanted to be able to appeal to, uh, you know, to uh, African Americans uh, in ways that, uh, uh, you know, would not have been suggested by uh, his campaign in 1988 and the Willie Horton stuff and all of that. So uh, I think that this was something that could help his reputation. Uh, with, with, with Blacks. I think there's a South Carolina political dimension uh, to it as well. And we'll, you know, I'm sorry to say that, that often politics do play a part in, in the Medal of Honor process. It's a fact of, of, of life. Families play a part. If there's a family to advocate for, um, you know, a, a, a loved one, then that is important too, because politicians like to be able to recognize uh, family members to, to be able to do something for, uh, for family. So I think all of those factors uh, played a role, but there's no question that when you look at what 
uh, Corporal Stowers did that he compared favorably to uh, uh, you know, many others who had been awarded the uh, Medal uh, of, of, of Honor. Um, so that, that's, that's basically how it happened. And he became, you know, here, here's a sort of real, uh, you know, stain on the American military that not a single black person out of 40 plus thousand soldiers who fought in World War I had been awarded the Medal of Honor? Come on, you know, there's something wrong with that picture. And the fact that there are only two now uh, says that there's still something uh, very wrong. And it took uh, almost 100 years for uh, Henry Johnson to uh, earn his. And, uh, uh, and, and I believe that there are many others who uh, are, are worthy uh, of the honor to this day, far more than, than two. And let's come back in a moment to the ongoing efforts to recognize African-Americans in World War I. But before we do that, uh, Dr. Sancho, what did, the, what did the award of this medal to Freddie Stowers mean to your family in 1991? Uh, on behalf of my family, let me, let me say that first so I'm not crucified afterwards. <laughs> on behalf of my family, I can say that some were astonished um, that there was an award or recognition out there in the outskirts that would eventually revert back to the small town of Sandy Springs, South Carolina. They were just amazed. Others were a little confused, confounded, didn't know exactly what that meant until the search began and the call came into my grandmother who was the only known Stowers in the town of Pendleton at the time that the individuals could find. And they got in touch with um, a group that actually serviced African-Americans and spoke up for African-Americans in the small, tiny town of Pendleton, South Carolina. And they were saying, well, you know what, wait a minute, we know, we know a Stowers, we know Josephine Stowers, let's get in touch with Josephine Stowers and see if she can lead us to the sisters of Corporal Freddie Sowers. And my grandmother was able to do that, joined forces, called her three daughters, asked some questions of which they were in Washington, D.C., her daughters. And then she had one daughter in South Carolina with her. So when everyone began to talk and the buzz kind of went throughout the family because the Sowers family is extremely large, um, not only the African-American side of the family, but also the Caucasian or those who identify themselves as white, that side of the family. And so calls were made everywhere throughout the nation, I'm going to say, because we're all over. Um, and what eventually began to happen was that this award reverberated and echoed through the children. And it's now moving through our generation. So they said, you know, we need to be able to pass down this information. We need as much of it as we can possibly gather together. We need to start to stand up and make a strong front, show that we support great uncle Freddie, we support all of our family members, we bring everyone together, and we need to begin to change the way we are behaving if we're not behaving in a way that is representative of the Stowers line as we should allow it to move forward based on what Corporal Freddie Stowers did. So I can tell you, 
I don't know what happens in most families when they discover that recognition has been bestowed upon an ancestor or a loved one. But in our family, I think it caused our young men to stand a little straighter um, and our women to be a little more proud and to monitor how you begin to live your life and to know that if someone else in your family has received such a great recognition, not only on a national level, but also on an international level, then it means that you have something within you that you need to bring forward as a light in the world and know that you're not, um, you're not as sometimes the stereotype of the United States might paint you to be. Stand up and do something different because those before you have done that and they expect you to do the same. So it, it wasn't just we're proud and we're excited about this. Um, it's an internal justice that we need to fulfill by showing what it means to begin to band with others and not to walk around and feel like you're second best or second class. So it's really changed your changed your lives and those of your family, but it's also added to some degree a burden of responsibility. Definitely. The obligation is quite great, Dr. Lingo. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have I, I've had a little taste of that. I'm a, a a cousin of uh, Corporal Alvin C. York, and I know his his family and his his son, and they have that 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 kind of glow to them. I think that that you're speaking about is they they feel that desire, that that need, and that responsibility to give to others to set an example for their communities um, in in kindness and charity um, and responsibility. So I think that's that's something that that many families uh, of Medal of Honor recipients feel. Um, so that's wonderfully, wonderfully said. Thank you, Dr. Salmon. So we have there's still work that needs to be done uh, with World War One. I. I mean, no doubt about it. You say only, only two. Uh, there are, as you and I are both aware, efforts underway to review uh, other possibly deserving African-American candidates from World War I, but it's a very challenging process, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and I, if you don't mind, I'd like to back up and, and uh, build on something that uh, uh, Dr. Sancho said in terms of what this has done for the, the family. Um, unfortunately, you know, Corporal Stowers died and was not able to benefit, but at least the family has. Uh, and that, that's multiplied uh, in terms of what the family is able to do uh, uh, for the larger black community and also to white folks to get them to understand uh, what he did and, and what he sacrificed and what this means. But imagine those who know that they deserve something, they lived through the war uh, and lived sometime after the war and, and know that they didn't get the recognition that they deserved. And here's a rare, the only sort of un, uh, less mediated uh, uh, statement uh, of Henry Johnson than I've ever seen. Henry Johnson was illiterate. He signed his draft registration card with an X. Uh, 
But obviously in 1927, when he was really on hard times, uh, he dictated a letter to someone. I don't know who, if that was his wife, a second wife uh, or not, but he wrote to Theodore Roosevelt Jr. And Theodore Roosevelt Jr. had written about Henry Johnson in a book about World War I and quite glowingly. Uh, he based it a lot on what uh, Irving uh, and I'm blanking, blanking on uh, Irving's uh, uh, last uh, uh, name, the coming glory or something like that. Cobb, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Cobb. Um, in any event, he wrote to Theodore Roosevelt Jr. I'm writing to say that I sincerely appreciate the article you had published in the paper concerning me and the way I fought to help protect this country during her struggle with Germany but I'm very sorry to state that I don't think my Uncle Sam is treating me just right as my pension has been reduced to $60 per month. I have a sick wife, a weakened body, and my health is gone, thus making it utterly impossible for me to work. How am I to make it in this life? The odds are all against me. Nevertheless, I'm no slacker, this I have demonstrated to all. I have endured the hardships of battle during the war and have fought hard, and I am doing the same in peace. I shall be very grateful to you if you will only attend to this matter for me, for I cannot manage to get along. Very respectfully yours, Sergeant Henry Johnson. So we can see one, he didn't get the money, the benefits that uh, uh, other, um, you know, that Medal of Honor recipients received or the adulation or recognition, he was virtually sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, a lost figure at this point in time to, you know, history. It's uh, uh, the press had forgotten him. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, was many, many years before anyone knew that Henry Johnson had actually been buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Um, and, uh, uh, and take the case of William Butler, who I hope we'll you know, discuss a bit in terms of someone who uh, seems to be uh, worthy of, of, of reconsideration, but William Butler committed suicide in 19... Uh, 47. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that there was, he suffered from war injuries, effects on the, um, you know, the pulmonary system, um, but also went without the recognition that I believe he knew he uh, deserved. Um, and I've even heard of, there's a, 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 a report from a white officer of the 369th who was telling some folks in California about what he had done in World War I with whom, and people thought that he was a liar because they didn't know of any black people who were fighting in World War I. Um, and uh, so that's the kind of thing that these black soldiers had to go through too uh, in terms of not being named to Pershing's 100 Greatest Heroes of the War or receiving 
the Medal uh, of, of, of Honor, which, and look, we're still talking about Sergeant York. There's a, uh, you know, a, a, a film with Gary Cooper about uh, Sergeant York or Audie Murphy in World War II, another who becomes a leading, you know, actor uh, in, in, in the story of his, of his own life. Um, so that kind of thing is not available to uh, the, the black uh, uh, soldier. And so that's another reason, you know, we need to, you know, make up to their memories at least, um, if not to them and, and to their families, uh, what uh, they didn't uh, 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 get uh, when they perhaps uh, should have. Uh, and uh, I wanted to say something about William Butler, if you don't mind. Uh, and uh, Butler certainly is a part of this systematic review. Uh, there is legislation that was passed by Congress to authorize a review, not only of African-American soldiers, but of uh, Latinx, uh, uh, Native Americans, uh, Jewish uh, American soldiers uh, and Asian American soldiers from uh, World War I to reconsider them. Uh, that is a project that is being led uh, uh, presently uh, by folks at Park University in Parkland, Missouri, outside of Kansas City. Well, I gave a lecture at Park University in 20. 15 or 16, on George S. Robb, George Senor Robb. George Robb was a graduate, not only of Park College, but also of their prep school. So he had been at Park for eight years and he's probably considered to be their greatest uh, alum. And why? Because he became a member of the 369th Regiment uh, as a, emergency or replacement officer. He had had no connection with this unit when they were the 15th New York National Guard, didn't come to them until April of 1918. But it was in the, you know, the great offensive of late September, early October, the Merce Argonne offensive, um, that George Robb distinguished himself um, he had been wounded numerous times, kept going, leading his men, his commanding officer and another first lieutenant uh, were killed. So Rob had command of this unit, continued on, although wounded, wounded again, uh, refused to leave the front, uh, and then finally was wounded uh, uh, a third uh, time and was was pulled uh, from the front. Uh, well, in any event, Rob is the only member of the 369 to have received the Medal of Honor. He would go on, and this is something else that happens to a lot of white officers and heroes. He became a postmaster and then was the uh, uh, treasurer of the state of uh, of uh, Kansas. Um, and uh, Rob, because I did 
due diligence in presenting this lecture on Rob that I hadn't done for the book, I discovered um, you know, lots of information um, um, about the regiment that I had not known before. One of which was because of a index sheet uh, in Rob's personnel file, one of the few files to have survived. I think 80% of the files, personnel files from World War I were destroyed in the fire of 1974 in uh, St. Louis while his survived. And in there was an index sheet indicating that he and William Butler had been nominated for the Medal of Honor on the same day, which was November 18th, 1918. Um, so it was after the war actually had ended. There was a review conducted by Pershing and this Medal Review Board because so few Medals of Honor had been uh, awarded during the war. And the unit thought enough of both men, especially William Butler, to nominate him. But I didn't, Butler's papers had been destroyed, so I couldn't find the actual citation, the nomination for Butler. Um, and so we were working basically on what Rob had to say about Butler. And he maintained that he had learned in his training that um, the, 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 the greatest accomplishment that a soldier um, could make uh, was when faced with a grave problem to be able to solve it and solve it now. And he said that William Butler's actions on August 14, 1918, uh, personified, uh, you know, that uh, a kind of characterization of the ideal uh, soldier. What did Butler do? Well, the Germans had infiltrated the uh, trench of the of the Company uh, uh, L of the 369th Regiment had captured the lieutenant uh, and a number of other men. Butler was at another position in the trench. He saw what was happening, picked up a show shot, which is a automatic French automatic weapon, notoriously inaccurate from distance, but deadly at close range, but designed to be shot on a stand prone. Butler picked it up, put it on his shoulder, enlisted two other men to feed and hold the, the uh, magazine, essentially, the clip, and ran after the Germans. His officers saw them coming, and they had communicated as well, hit the deck, and Butler mowed down the Germans. And what Rob said about this is that he had you know a few seconds to think this out and that he inserted himself into a very dangerous situation showed all kinds of imagination and ingenuity in the process uh and uh, was deserving of the highest consideration for what uh he had done 
very recently, I went to a you know a record group at the National Archives that somehow I had missed before, the record group of the 93rd Division, and found the actual nomination letter for William Butler for the Medal of Honor, which was on the same page as that for George S. Robb. That's also when I found the nomination letter for Van Horton. But interestingly, there was a Quad Aguirre nomination letter for Butler that was, you know, three times longer than his Medal of Honor nomination letter. Uh, it used all of the language that one would is required for the Medal of Intrepidity, uh, gallantry beyond, you know, the call of duty, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Rob's nomination was first on the sheet, and it was twice as long as Butler's. In order to make a decision between, on the basis of what was presented by the commanding officer of the regiment to you know, General Pershing and the review board, there's no question if I had to decide on one versus the other, I would have decided on Rob. So even though his, you know, commanding officer felt that he was deserving and worthy of consideration, not so much as the white officer was. And this is another factor too that I've seen in some of the Medal of Honor nomination files that I've studied, that officers are often privileged in terms of you know, consideration for the honor or those who save officers are. And uh, an officer needs to be involved in some way as a witness or whatever. And uh, 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 there's Donald Call is a very interesting figure. I know something about this one. Donald Call was with Patton's tank battalion in World War I. Uh, officer John Wesley Castles, who had transferred from the 15th New York National Guard or 369th to Patton's army because he couldn't stand Colonel Hayward and also uh, being around these black soldiers, Donald Call rescued John Wesley Castles from this burning tank under all kinds of fire um, and received the Medal of Honor for his uh, heroic and call did survive uh, uh, the war and so did John Wesley. Well, Dr. Sammons, thank you. I think there are many great points there and a couple that you reminded us of is one, the cost to those who were deserving of recognition, but to whom it was denied. I mean, there's their awareness of what they did and their awareness that they were not recognized and, and the cost that that levies against them. Um, now, as well as many of the, the challenges and the difficulties uh, faced in these reviews and the story of, uh, of William Butler as well is, is such a powerful story. Uh, we need to begin to, to wrap this up. Um, I think it shows that this is such a rich topic for discussion. I want to be able to invite both of you back and, and talk about this more, but I'd like Dr. Sancho to go to you 
court for some some final comments on how the how important this is today how important in your case the example of freddie stowers remains today and how impactful it can be for for young people of all backgrounds of of all you know experiences in life today can you share with us some of your the work that you're doing and sancho education and what how you think others can can learn from this as well okay dr langlo i'll share just one brief um, example we do a lot of work with students and first and foremost trying to figure the best way to model not only inclusion but general acceptance and cultural intelligence as, as it's listed in a scholarly term, which is CQ. So color, correction, culturally relevant pedagogy, cultural intelligence, all of these terms that we can throw out of the window mean nothing to you. They are going to follow the examples and the observations that they have of those in front of them that they feel an affinity for or that they feel close to. So a large portion of the work that my small group of colleagues and I help to endeavor um, happiness in is by showing students that we can model what we're asking them to do. What Corporal Freddie Stowers did was an example. He went out into a place that was foreign to himself, with language around him that he did not know, people around him that may not have cared anything about him, and people that did not look like him and those who did, and he was expected to produce. He was expected to work for a common goal. Is that not what we ask all students, all youth, all people that work in employees, people that work in workplaces? Do we not ask them to do the same thing? We do. But do we also then take the time to try and model what's the right thing to do? What's the right way to be? What's the right way to speak? What's the right way to show acceptance? I think now we're beginning to, more people are trying to help open those windows and broaden those spaces and horizons where they are. So in terms of why is it important today? It is important because in order for our generations to move forward, we need to be able to put some steam behind them. That steam cannot be rooted in dissension it cannot be rooted in discord. It has to be rooted in love or harmony or um, understanding. So one main example would be, we went to a school where there were students of all different backgrounds. Um, the school was a Catholic school located in Greenville, South Carolina that invited us to come and speak on the topic of Corporal Freddie Sowers for Veterans Day. We were invited to go back again. And after we went back the next time, we said we need to do something more because these are students that are in kindergarten, first grade, second, third, fourth, fifth, all the way up to sixth, and they are interested in the story. They are expected to get along with each other every day. Their teachers are showing different colors in the classroom. They're wearing different clothing. They're coming with different socioeconomic backgrounds into the classroom each day, driving their cars into the parking lot. The students are seeing all of this and they are expected to get along with each other. If they were so moved by the story of someone who lived a hundred years ago, that they don't know 
they knew nothing about, but they were so excited to hear the story and how he managed to, to make this change and to work with the people around him who were so different, then that means they're not the only one. Um, there are many others that are the same way. And so we decided, well, let's commend them for what they've done. Not only did we go back to the school, ask for a small competition to be put in place where students could tell us how much they learned off of what we told them. Did they know that this person was right in the backyard 100 years ago? They actually participated at all different grade levels. So we ended up taking that a little bit further and decided let's turn this into a scholarship, which is what we're working on now through that 501c3. But I would say that in order for us to see major change, we have to model it. And if we're going to model it, we have to be genuine about it. And that, in my opinion, and many of those in my family, is the legacy that Corporal Freddie Salas left behind. Because social learning theory tells us children and youth are going to do what they see you do, regardless to what you tell them is right. So that would be my answer to that. I have to say that I, I feel strongly that uh, Freddie Stowers is very proud of his family and that you are truly honoring his legacy and, and all that he all that he did. Uh, I think it's just uh, it's just so admirable what you're doing. And, and I look forward to continuing to to find ways to to work together. And uh, I encourage all of our all of our viewers to, to take a look at what you're doing and to, to learn from it and help us all grow together from this. Well, I have to, I have to wrap this up. I'm sorry that it's, uh, it's been such a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful conversation. I'm just sorry that it has to end. Uh, this shows in, in, a, in one way uh, the, the stories and the experiences that we want to highlight at the National Medal of Honor Museum in Arlington, Texas, and the National Medal of Honor Monument in Washington, D.C. Stories like those of Freddie Stowers, Henry Johnson, and, uh, and others will be a big part of that experience, uh, particularly our uh, African-American uh, and other Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, just to wrap up, I'd say if you want to learn more about the National Medal of Honor Museum, please visit mohmuseum.org. Uh, I invite everybody to join us for the next Mission Inspire podcast. But right now, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Sammons and Dr. Sancho, for a wonderful conversation. And I uh, look forward to next time. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with both of you. <clears throat> thank you. Same to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you.